Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand, owner of the company Horns Vodin. And today I'm joined by Crystal Zilmer. So Crystal, thank you for taking the time on Valentine's Day of all days to come and talk to me. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Do you just want to quickly give a, a little introduction into who you are, what you specialize in and, and what we're going to talk about, I guess, today? Yeah. Um, my name is Crystal, and uh, I am a runologist. Uh, this is a fancy word for somebody who is a scholar doing runic studies. So my uh, field of expertise is runology, and uh, I work as professor at the Museum of Cultural History, which is uh, part of the University of Oslo in Norway. And uh, I think uh, I can say that I assume that the reason you invited me uh, to join you here uh, tonight is uh, a very interesting and also quite uh, sensational runic find that mm -hmm. uh, uh, the world first learned about uh, in January 2022, yeah. a runestone. The, the world's oldest runestone, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's uh, correct. As yeah. uh, scholars, uh, of course, we are careful with what kind of words we choose. And mm -hmm. when we were going public with this news as well on beforehand, we were discussing, uh, can we actually say that? But in this case, we did find that we can say that it is uh, the world's oldest dated runestone. And uh, meaning basically a stone where we have been able to uh, uh, determine how old the stone actually is okay okay i'm gonna save save those questions because i've got a bunch even just on how you date something like that firstly i i have to ask what made you choose studying runes in the first place because it you know i'm you know i, I own a business in this in kind of in this whole sphere and the one thing i see argued about more than any other is runes and misconceptions. It seems to be so complicated. So what made you choose that one? It's not necessarily complicated, but it's maybe that runes, uh, it's a fascinating uh, topic, of course, and uh, runes uh, attract a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. So uh, when we uh, went public with this news as well, I was already prepared that, of course, it will attract a lot of uh, different kind of attention as well. Uh, ranging from uh, very positive feedback to the wildest theories uh, you can imagine, but we can get back yeah. to that. But the reason um, for me becoming a runologist, well, uh, you know, life is uh, in many ways uh, full of random chances and uh, the paths you choose. Sometimes you might start doing something and then you end up uh, somewhere completely different, something that you may have not had in mind at all to start with. Yeah. In my case, it all started um, when I uh, decided to study um, Scandinavian studies at the University of Tartu uh, in Estonia. I am originally Estonian, so uh, okay. people... People who are listening to me and maybe have had some uh, contacts with Estonians or, for example, Finns, they might recognize my accent as uh, quite typical for Estonians and Finns. Mm. Uh, Estonian and Finnish are related languages uh, as well. But uh, so I started studying uh, Scandinavian studies and uh, as part of the, the studies, then uh, it was quite common to spend uh, a year or two abroad in one of the Scandinavian countries in my case, I was majoring in Norwegian language and literature. 
And then I got to study uh, for some years um, in Oslo, in Norway. Mm-hmm. And uh, just uh, I remember still uh, actually how I was standing there in the room with a student advisor, basically picking uh, some subjects for uh, the fall term. And uh, I saw a course uh, where the title was Runology. And okay. I had heard about runes and uh, I thought it sounded interesting. And then I signed up. And uh, my uh, lecturer was uh, uh, monologist uh, Terjes Purkland, and he was a very inspiring uh, lecturer. Uh, so I remember that it was uh, both a lot of fun and very exciting to attend uh, his uh, course. And uh, I decided uh, while uh, taking the course that this could be actually something interesting to pursue uh, and work worth it with. Uh, so... Uh, uh, then the road basically continued from yeah. there that I chose uh, runic uh, topics for uh, my bachelor thesis and master's thesis. And then also uh, in combination with all Norse uh, philology for my uh, PhD. And uh, after that, I worked in um, Estonia for some years. And then uh, postdoctoral opening came along in um, in Norway, Bergen. So for many years, uh, I worked in Bergen first uh, with a postdoctoral project and uh, later on uh, at a college there. Uh, and uh, what all the while uh, I uh, was then academically, uh, research-wise, um, uh, interested in runology. So this is something mm-hmm. that then I've been basically working with ever since I was a bachelor student. And uh, in 2019, um, this uh, job at the University of Oslo, the Museum of Cultural History, uh, the runology position was advertised um, after the runologist there, James Knurk, uh, had retired. And uh, I was uh, a lucky one. Uh, So uh, I got this job and this is really a runologist's uh, dream come true. Uh, So... Mm -hmm. uh, as part of my job at the museum, then I have uh, both research and museum work. And of course, the museum work then also entails working with uh, very exciting new runic finds from Norway. So uh, it is, uh, this is yeah. really a wonderful job to have. I'm very mm-hmm. lucky and privileged to be working um, in that field. Did, did you ever think that something like this would turn upon your desk? Because I guess it's for, for all you know, academics, this is a dream come true. To find, like, the earliest of something must be, like, so exciting. Mm. Um, Well, in a way, of course, you're not prepared for uh, something quite (laughs) as spectacular as this one. But uh, new runic finds are made in Norway and in Scandinavia basically every year. Uh, Maybe not all of them are quite uh, as... uh, big news as uh, this latest runestone find but uh, but all of these are interesting and uh, unique wonderful finds which uh, uh, extend our knowledge about how runes were used in different uh, periods of time and uh, in Norway and in Denmark also where metal detecting uh, is legal uh, so uh, there's regulations in place but uh, basically people can go around so uh, part of our runic corpus uh, keeps also increasing thanks to metal detecting finds uh, these are mostly mm-hmm. medieval finds then when it comes to the oldest uh, runic uh, 
tradition, then of course these uh, finds are very rare. It's uh, not so often that they come along. But uh, again, in Norway, uh, we have had also over the years uh, the latest find uh, of uh, uh, ancient Nordic uh, runestone then was um, made in 2017. And before that, there was uh, another one from 2009. So every now and then it does still happen that something uh, that uh, old uh, and exciting can uh, come along. Mm -hmm. So, um, but in this particular case, uh, uh, well, of course, when it was first found, we didn't know right away how old uh, this would be. Absolutely. The find first has to be analyzed. But in any case, once we could be sure that um, uh, this was an authentic find, uh, then uh, it was in any case sure that it was... Uh, one of the stones uh, that was potentially among uh, the oldest uh, rune stones. So, uh, so then you of course started thinking, well, yeah, it's not anything that I really expected that I would be working with. No. Um, so, uh, so yes, in a way, you can always expect new finds, but not uh, not quite anything like that. So you hope for something like this, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, of course you do, but yes. But when it uh, actually happens, it's quite unbelievable. Oh, I bet, I bet. And the attention must be overwhelming at times as well. Yeah, you could uh, say that. Uh, but overall, it's uh, it's just a really, it's a wonderful process to be a part of. And uh, mm. I am uh, just incredibly thankful that uh, I'm among the people who get to work with this find. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, so can you give us a very quick basic rundown of what runes are what what would constitute as a rune hmm. well runes are basically letters uh, units of writing we can say and uh, with when we talk about runes we talk about uh, an alphabetic type of writing an old germanic alphabetic type of writing alphabetic would then mean uh, like with the Latin alphabet that we use for writing uh, different languages today, that you have uh, letters uh, that stand, uh, represent different sounds. So a rune is then a written sign that represents uh, one or more sounds in uh, spoken uh, Germanic languages. Mm -hmm. Okay, that sums it up nicely because you do see, without going off on too many tangents because again i think we could we could probably sit down and do a whole other episode just on just on runes themselves and what they mean and, and the misconceptions um, mm. and we're going to get to some of those after with the q a but you do see a lot of the time people saying you know a specific rune means a certain thing mm. um or stands for something like you always tend to see like protection comes up like this rune mm. is protection mm. um how much truth is there to stuff like that well um i mean speaking as a runologist runic scholar and also among those uh, well in runology too you've traditionally or historically have had uh, somewhat differing schools of thought in a way or some who would maybe call themselves more skeptical and others who have been labeled by others as more imaginative runologists. So mm -hmm. historically, you've had uh, some of these discussions um, and debates as part of scholarship as well. But uh, the main point is that uh, 
of course, in uh, modern uh, uh, understanding of runes, and especially in the wider, broader, popular understanding of runes, it's uh, more these magical and mystical theories that take over, and uh, mm. then shadow for the fact that uh, we're actually dealing with a system of writing, a system of writing that could be used for different purposes. So in runological scholarship, we often try to basically make this um, important distinction between that a letter that you use for writing, uh, a row of runes, an inscription that you write down. This inscription can have a magical purpose or meaning. It could have maybe been used also as part of some rituals. We don't really know uh, in all cases. But uh, it doesn't uh, then automatically come from uh, the idea that the marks, the written marks in themselves would have had these special powers or uh, or uh, some supernatural uh, conceptions added to them. But it is writing that could be used for different purposes. It could be both practical, it could be symbolic, it could be magic, it could be religious. So that's uh, kind of one of the main um, uh, distinctions that we uh, try to draw then uh, to explain to people that, of course, you can use a system of writing uh, for various uh, reasons and for various purposes, but it doesn't uh, then automatically mean that uh, letters as such that we used were magical entities in uh, themselves. But mm -hmm. uh, also today, of course, you would have maybe some scholars who are maybe more open to consider that maybe when you have the oldest tradition Maybe there were some ideas also connected to the idea of writing in itself. Also, we know so little what writing could have meant in uh, uh, prehistoric society. And uh, when we go so um, uh, long back in time, what did it actually mean? How was it perceived? There's little uh, that we can conclude. But uh, mm -hmm. overall, it's still uh, for us uh, as runic scholars, it's in, uh, important that uh, at least in scholarly context that the uh, misconceptions uh, don't take over and um, and uh, then it's another thing what is done with runes as part of modern uh, traditions and popular culture and uh, apps and uh, movies and uh, video games and all that kind of uh, all these uses I mean uh, we can maybe try to sometimes explain where we see some problems but uh, naturally we have no control over that and that's yeah. part of the modern ideas about runes but why mm. you would have also the idea of the, the different meanings of different runes is that we do know also historically that uh, runes uh, as uh, uh, letters uh, used for writing they also had meaningful names and uh, that could have been mm -hmm. uh, part of the tradition, how you also learned uh, about runes, how you memorized uh, okay. individual runes, that uh, these names were kind of a helpful tool, what we would call a mnemotechnic tool that mm -hmm. you could use to memorize because the mm -hmm. name, the word representing uh, a particular rune would then uh, start with uh, the letter that the rune would stand for, the sound. Yeah. So, I think anybody uh, with anybody with kids or anybody who can uh, remember back to being a child remembers those techniques of memorizing. We know we still use yeah, it today. Yeah. So, uh, but that uh, again has been developed in uh, different uh, directions, and uh, some have tried to explain all the individual names of individual runes uh, into kind of a system that would make uh, sense. That uh, there will be some kind of a logic behind the, the, the why different names were chosen but uh, but none of the theories are really 
uh, fully convincing. So, uh, so that's why, as a more, so to say, skeptical runologist uh, scholar, then uh, I think I would, yeah, simply say that uh, names uh, most likely were useful tools for learning. Mm. But what other additional layers of meaning that could have been added to them, we really don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So okay. So before we we get onto this to the runestone, I have one question that I I feel like I wouldn't be doing my job properly if I didn't ask. Um, and I'm not sure because obviously magic is such a a thing that gets tied into runes. And I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether you've seen, there's been a little bit of a debate between two scholars that I've seen online, between uh, between Dr. Jackson Crawford and Dr. Rune Rasmussen. Um, and they've been on opposite ends of whether runes, like runes as a symbol could mm. be used as magic. Mm. Um, I think Dr. Crawford is on the idea that it's very much a writing source and kind of in that camp. Mm. And Runa is on the idea that Mm. there are maybe some examples where Mm. runes are used as a symbol, as a magical purpose. Mm. Mm. And I wanted to just get your opinion on that. I'm not asking you to to take sides, but I was just very interested in kind of where you would fit on that in that camp and, and your your thoughts yeah uh, i touched a bit upon that uh, already when i was uh, talking a bit about that we have mm-hmm. had different uh, yeah. lines of thought uh, within scholarship as well and uh, as well and uh, especially uh, during the first half of the 20th century going back historically where also various uh, acknowledged uh, runic uh, scholars worked with various uh, rune magic theories and uh, we're, we're trying to figure out if there could be specific uh, systems, uh, uh, mm-hmm. magic systems uh, behind certain inscriptions and so on. But around the mid-20th century, then there were uh, some uh, scholars who uh, took a more source-critical and systematical approach to that and also went through the different uh, contexts where runes are mentioned uh, in uh, later literary sources as well, poetic and uh, prose sources, uh, Old Norse literature, for example, and also uh, explaining clearly that in not all of this context, the word rune necessarily then means the written characters, uh, but it can also have other meanings, so not necessarily related to writing, so that the word in itself could also be used with uh, uh, with varying meanings and not uh, then always automatically talking about writing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and when we uh, come uh, to today, so overall, we could say that uh, the majority of uh, uh, runic uh, scholars uh, then... Uh, mainly find that it's important to emphasize uh, that runes were a system of writing because we do yes. see that otherwise it gets misunderstood so thoroughly mm-hmm. and that there are so so much uh, so many misconceptions and also some more problematic uh, ways of misusing runes as we all know where yeah, we have it, so uh, uh, without necessarily having go having to go further into that right now so uh, for that reason, too, we as scholars really find that it's our responsibility to clearly communicate that uh, message, uh, runes as uh, a system of writing, uh, mm-hmm. runes as individual letters uh, that could be uh, used uh, for writing. Uh, but uh, when then uh, I say that maybe, uh, as I was uh, commenting a bit uh, or reflecting a bit upon 
is uh, that overall, especially with the oldest traditions and where we have so few inscriptions preserved, and uh, there's maybe only some parts of the tradition that we have insight into. So uh, naturally, our knowledge is also limited then about uh, what these letters uh, uh, and the system of writing could indeed have meant to those who first started using them. Mm. And if the, because writing in itself, of course, you can also think that in uh, very early times and with people who first encounter writing, that maybe it has also some uh, symbolic meaning to them, but it's very hard to uh, find out <laughs> in that yeah. uh, case, like why and how. Uh, this is more maybe like theoretical uh, possibilities that we also have to consider. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Don't necessarily deny that uh, it could have existed, but uh, but overall, just uh, yeah, try to then communicate what we do know and what we see from preserved uh, tradition and inscriptions. Mm -hmm. No, that that makes complete sense, and it feels like. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The that you're saying that. A lot of scholars tend to stick to it's a writing source because it kind of neatens things up, I guess, in a sense that for the general public. Because mm. if you if you go if you say it's a writing source, but occasionally these ones we're not quite sure of, maybe they were magical, maybe they're not, then you would get people automatically got who would just attach themselves to that and would maybe get a lot more misconceptions from that. So you to try and keep it as at, accurate as possible, you lean towards? At least in, uh, I would say, maybe pedagogical context, uh, then I find it is important to have a clear message then uh, and emphasize, uh, as I said, that runes, uh, it's basically an alphabet, alphabet yeah. and uh, individual runes, uh, characters of that alphabet units of that alphabet used uh, to represent sounds in spoken language. So, mm. uh, so, and I think that cannot uh, be stressed uh, strongly enough because uh, this is where we see that uh, there is still uh, so much else out there. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but uh, then myself as a scholar, of course, I also try to be open and honest about the things that we do not know. And uh, that's why I was also commenting upon that when we talk about very, very early use of writing and uh, sparse evidence of inscriptions that we have, and how can we even approach the ideas that may have uh, existed uh, mm -hmm. there being behind the use of runes. Uh, the, um, so uh, overall, it's just... Uh, that we have to discuss certain uh, theories, but uh, have a critical mind. So. Yeah, perfect. Okay, let's let's talk about the rune stone. Let's. So how? I guess let's maybe chronologically start at the beginning, um, and the discovery of it, and how this thing ends up effectively on your desk and you looking at it. Can you give mm. us a little bit about the story of that? Yeah. Um, this is uh, in many ways also a favorite or one of the favorite parts of the whole story. I've heard that, a little bit of it. That's why I'm really excited to hear the yeah, whole thing. That's, uh, yeah, we all, uh, me and uh, my colleagues, archaeologists uh, at the Museum of Cultural History, who've been working on the find and who were, of course, those who found the stone. Uh, this is really something that we enjoy uh, talking about uh, in general. So yeah. it all uh, started. Uh, 
because uh, our archaeologists, uh, the Museum of Cultural History, uh, they have uh, various excavation projects that they are involved in. And uh, in this case, uh, it was an excavation uh, in uh, eastern Norway in a municipality called Hula. And uh, the archaeological site uh, itself is uh, known as Svingerud uh, or close to Svingerud Road uh, that goes right by. Uh, they, they're excavating then... Uh, in uh, 2021, uh, Greyfield uh, on that site. Uh, from before, beforehand, they knew that uh, there were three grave mounds uh, on the site. When they started investigating it further, they discovered a fourth one. And also as part of the excavation, then they uh, discovered two um, simpler kind of graves, what we could call uh, uh, flat graves or with uh, a scholarly term cremation pit, uh, basically mm -hmm. uh, burial, uh, burnt burial. So, so uh, sorry. So would a would a flat grave be just a typical burial? Yeah, with, it, without it's the cremation, simpler kind of burial, which does not basically kind of like a pit to hole in the ground, uh, and uh, then uh, in this case, since it was cremation with some burnt. Uh, but ashes and fragments of burnt bones. Uh, and uh, in some cases where there be then stones as filling or also simple stones on uh, top of the grave. But mm. uh, so we're working on that grave field and uh, it was already getting uh, close uh, to the end of the excavation uh, period. Uh, it was uh, November 2021. And uh, during the last days of excavation, then they um, uh, started uh, digging into one of these two flat graves or cremation pits that they had discovered, uh, which was actually then located underneath one of the burial mounds. And uh, where they're digging into the grave and approximately half a meter below the surface then, they saw a nice flat stone that was uh, sticking out uh, in the structure. And uh, yeah, a nice stone. Archaeologists uh, naturally check everything on site as well, uh, but uh, it's not always so easy to see everything right away. So with mm. this stone, they uh, of course documented the site, and there are photos, and everything uh, is recorded in the field notes, and there are measurements. Um, but uh, they didn't see anything on the stone right away. Uh, so uh, the very last day of excavation, uh, November 12th, uh, the excavation leader on site, uh, Judita Zawalska, an archaeologist with the Museum of Cultural History, then uh, decided that uh, it would be wise to bring the stone back to the museum. Uh, it was in a very nice sample of uh, a special kind of sandstone known from the area. The historical district uh, there is also known as Ringerike in Norway, and mm -hmm. it is known for its uh, special type of sandstone, basically Ringerike sandstone, red-brownish sandstone. And mm -hmm. uh, this piece of stone, well, approximately 31 uh, times 32 centimeters, uh, so uh, not so uh, heavy uh, to lift or carry. And uh, so she decided that it could be uh, useful and wise to bring it back for further analysis, consult maybe with some uh, geologists and see what else we can learn about mm -hmm. the stone. Yeah. She uh, packed the stone in a car, drove uh, to Oslo, 
uh, carrying it in. I, uh, I mean, that just just that journey alone. Let's, you know, obviously she doesn't know what she has at this point. No. But just her driving along with the world's oldest dated runestone in like the back mm-hmm. of her car mm-hmm. must be... Yeah, that's just a uh, you know yeah. just see like and i'm sure it was wrapped very nicely and, and protected yes but... yeah of course yeah when they transport things uh it's uh, yeah it's with any archaeological finds you have certain procedures how you pack yeah. and uh, how you transport them but then arriving in oslo at the museum uh, facilities uh, and uh, bringing it into the storage the stone had dried uh somewhat in the car of course, uh, on site too, on the field, uh, uh, it was wet and covered in soil. And uh, uh, it's also important to know that the inscriptions there are very, very thinly incised, carved, very fine incisions. So uh, not so easy to see, uh, actually, uh, unless you know that there is something there. Yeah. Uh, and when carrying the stone in to the museum, then it had dried. And also there was artificial light then inside the museum building, uh, coming in from suitable angle. And all of a sudden, she just has this stone and looks at it and says, oh, my God, there's something on this stone. There's inscriptions. And At least she didn't drop it out of shock. (laughs) That's probably what I would have done. I'd have been like, oh, my God. And then just slipped out of my hands. So then she got hold of some colleagues who also checked. Yes, yeah, we do see something here. Yeah, we see runes here. Then they contacted the project manager, uh, the leader of the excavation uh, project, Steiner Sulheim, uh, another of the colleagues at the museum, and uh, sent him some pictures uh, and in a text message. And then he sent an email to me. And uh, I uh, it was Friday afternoon, and I will uh, forever remember that Friday afternoon, basically uh, close to four p.m. and uh, kind of you know November Friday afternoon yeah. when you are already mentally logging off uh, your computer. Mm-hmm. I was about to pack together my things and catch the train home, and all of a sudden I see uh, this email from uh, my colleague Stena then, and uh, I start reading. I think we have found a piece of stone with runes. Can you take mm-hmm. a look at the photos and uh, say uh, what do you think? And then there were attached photos. I scrolled down and uh, my goodness, I see that these are runes that belong to the older Futark, as we call the earliest version of the runic alphabet, mm-hmm. which then automatically would then mean that we are dealing with uh, part of the oldest uh, runic tradition. Uh, but naturally, I mean, I don't uh, let myself get carried away uh, right away uh, because then I have to write to the archaeologist and ask, but how did this stone turn up? Because yeah. in any situation like that, when you just first get uh, some pictures and information, we found a stone with runes, and then you, of course, also have to be a bit careful with what you say. I mean, mm-hmm. I saw there were runes of the older Futtark and uh, on a piece of stone, uh, very likely, possibly an authentic runestone, but you don't know because uh, I had to first uh, find out about uh, what the fine circumstances, the context. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is, that, then, is that to make sure it's genuine? Because I guess, yes. do you do you get a lot of modern imitations or not a or lot, it, but it, uh, but sorry, there are was, some. Yeah. It, so, do you get them from? 
modern day that kind of slipping or are they some that maybe from I don't know the the medieval period that are using the the older for that but so they're not mm. dated as old but they're they're still old but they're not kind of mm. the time not, you look at uh, does that happen not from the medieval period but we have uh, this kind of uh, part of the runic tradition uh, not part of the first genuine runic tradition that gets uh, continued from the middle ages but we have kind of like a revival of uh, runic tradition in Scandinavia also post reformation and uh, where first uh, some uh, scholars uh, become interested in uh, the writing of the past and uh, mm. past uh, artifacts and uh, and then uh, gradually also uh, different uh, uh, local and regional uh, adaptations uh, newer versions of runic script uh, that you get in the uh, yeah, 17th and 18th and 19th century. So, uh, and there you have also some that then have tried to imitate uh, old rune stones or other old runic objects using the old footwork, yeah. and in some cases also trying to imitate the language. And you do have also some of these uh, really basically to say modern rune stones from the 20th and 21st century, where also people uh, sometimes just try to imitate. Uh, very often with the modern finds, you will right away see that there is uh, something peculiar either about uh, how they use uh, runic writing or maybe they use, let's say, older footwork or younger footwork from the Viking age, but they write uh, modern language. Uh, either okay, say that, right, yeah. uh, that they write the words then in the inscription, say in modern Norwegian or modern English. So you start reading it and then you realize, oh, yeah, okay, here they've just used the runes and the, these are actually in the modern language. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't happen so often, of course, that the, uh, these kinds of finds come along, but they do uh, come along every now and then. And uh, yeah, I guess the, the most famous one I can think of is... Kensington runestone that that feels <laughs> yeah. like that's the, the 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 one that really stands out as like a yeah yeah the famous Kensington stone of course it's uh it's a whole case of its own mm -hmm. so uh and uh well well known in scholarship again uh, that uh, yes uh, this is uh from the late 19th century but still uh, to this day you have uh, those who would want to believe otherwise Mm -hmm. uh, but in any case, uh, maybe we don't have to really talk about no, no. We, we, we've done a whole episode on that, yeah. so don't worry, we yeah. don't have to we don't have to cover yeah. that. Because sometimes it's also like uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it can be a bit of a difficult subject sometimes, depending on uh, yeah who you are talking to or what uh, interests uh, people have. Mm -hmm. But uh, in this case, then uh, the archaeologists, of course, could very easily and quickly explain to me that, no, this was actually found as part of the excavations and describing the setting with uh, the uh, the simpler, the flat grave, the cremation pit, then being uh, under the grey mound. The stone was not on the surface. As I explained, they started digging into the grave and it was uh, approximately half a meter below the surface. Okay. Uh, the context uh, appeared undisturbed. So they could really be sure and um, certain about the context that it wasn't some, uh, you know, secondary addition to uh, an earlier Iron Age grave. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Yes. That, that, that was going to be my, my next question was how we date because obviously at the start of the show you said it's the world's oldest dated runestone and I was curious how 
you accurately date something like this because obviously carbon dating isn't mm. an option with stone. Um, so yeah, that the, I'm curious of that mm. of how what what makes it a a mm. datable stone. In this case, uh, it is thanks to uh, radiocarbon dating as well because it is what the stone was found together with that it okay. can then uh, give us uh, the materials that we need uh, for dating, organic materials. And in this case, it was uh, pieces, as I said, it was cremation, uh, burnt uh, burial then, and uh, uh, burnt bone fragments, ashes, and uh, uh, charcoal samples could uh, be dated uh, using radiocarbon uh, dating mm. C14 uh, for C14 uh, and uh, and uh, and as uh, as I explained that the grave context uh, was undisturbed and the stone was inside the grave then we could really say that at least the stone must have been or must have ended up or put in the grave uh, when the grave so to say came into being that it wasn't yes. the later addition to the grave and that's uh, how you could then get a time span with radiocarbon dating. You get like the most uh, likely time span uh, mm. where the samples are analyzed. Uh, well, I'm a runologist. Uh, my archaeology colleagues would uh, definitely explain this much better, the whole yeah. uh, process of how this works. But mm -hmm. uh, overall, yes, with this kind of uh, samples, uh, in this case, they were able uh, to determine then that uh, the likely time span uh, for when the grave is uh, from, is from uh, approximately year 1 to 250 uh, okay. AD, AD or Common Era. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, that's, still, that's still quite a big span. It's not with, oh. you know, it's not a, a little... So what's what's the oldest previous runestone? What, what was <laughs> yeah. the one that it... What, what did it beat? Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, that is also the thing that uh, with all the previous finds, also we couldn't really have like a very exact dating. Mm -hmm. It's uh, runestones basically very difficult to date yeah. unless you have uh, archaeological context, uh, something that will provide you this additional material that you need for dating because... Uh, with this type of material, often uh, there isn't anything specific about uh, the script or the language, uh, especially these early stages uh, before certain changes uh, start happening in language um, and you get kind of a transition period from what we can call ancient Nordic or uh, Proto-Norse or Proto-Nordic. There's different labels that uh, different scholars use here to uh, Old Norse then, that when you get into more like a transition period and you see language starts uh, changing and then you maybe have uh, more uh, criteria that you can go after dating-wise as well. But uh, these uh, very first centuries of the runic tradition, you don't have uh, much to go after. And... Uh, uh, so uh, it has been then till now, it was generally assumed that the earliest runestones in Scandinavia then appear sometime uh, during the second half of the 4th century, early 5th century. Okay. So uh, stone, um, another Norwegian stone, uh, which uh, still stands on uh, more or less its original site, 
in uh, Valdres in Norway. It is known as the Einang Stone in uh, Norway. Then that was considered as possibly uh, the oldest uh, runestone or among the oldest. And uh, that was also based on the uh, uh, grave fields and other finds from nearby grave graves. Um, it was then uh, assumed to be from uh, a second half or a late fourth uh, century. Okay. Uh, so- so this one's potentially somewhere between two. What? Let's see how good my maths are. Like, so roughly like two hundred to four hundred years older. Yeah. Which is a, so a, it, uh, that's even, a big period of time. Exactly. It brings it at least a few, yeah, two hundred or so, uh, and possibly even more uh, years back in time. With some of the runestones, also before uh, there were scholars who. Uh, Basically, we're also saying that possibly these stones can be older than mm. uh, fourth century, but we didn't have any way of really proving that. So you okay. could uh, you could just uh, discuss hypothetically that yes, because there's not so many distinct uh, criteria to go after dating wise, and then you just look at uh, and compare it to other runic uh, finds, uh, small portable objects with inscriptions that had been been dated archaeologically. And uh, one of the very oldest uh, runic finds, when we usually talk about what's the oldest runic inscriptions we know of, so the oldest uh, inscription where we can be certain that it's runes, uh, it's uh, recorded on a bone comb from uh, Denmark, and uh, Mm -hmm. it has archaeologically been dated to around the year 160 AD uh, of Common Era. So so, uh, with that in mind, then uh, there... Where scholars who also before said that maybe some of the runestones could also be more or less uh, from the same time as these earliest uh, uh, loose objects with runes. But we really didn't have any way of um, finding uh, that out or making sure that we can actually mm-hmm. date the stones. And in this particular case, then uh, we are basically very lucky that for the first time we can actually say that now, naturally, the problem here is that we can't really say that, yes, this stone is from year 25 or that this yeah. stone is from 150 or 170. So potentially, it is also potentially the oldest runic inscription ever. Yeah, uh, but that's what I was just thinking yeah. when you said about the... But uh, we can't say that. So that's why we have... Uh, what we can say it's the oldest dated runestone. So uh, again, okay. in a scholarly, uh, careful way of wording it. But if it is from before 160, where we have the the comb from uh, Denmark, mm. uh, then it could also potentially be uh, yeah the oldest known inscription. Even more important than it already is. Mm. So okay, so we know how how it's been found and how it's come to you so what can you learn i guess just just from the runes themselves how much dating can you do from the runes mm-hmm. what where how does the process even begin when this thing is in front of you and you have to mm. look at it and figure yeah. out what what on yeah. earth it says yeah uh, well there are of course different uh, steps uh, you take uh, as part of the the process of uh, working uh, with a find like that uh, from the very basic uh, just first description assessment of uh, from uh, all the basic measurements uh, description of how the find looks uh, what do you notice uh, about it uh, 
till uh, you go further to uh, all the particularities of uh, the different inscriptions, uh, markings that are actually uh, present on this stone. And then uh, you uh, try to then figure out uh, as much as you can how to read the rooms, identify the individual characters, and uh, then also uh, see what can be interpreted, how much can we understand of the inscriptions. Is it uh, a linguistically meaningful message or is it uh, maybe just a at least what would seem to us maybe as a random uh, row of runes or uh, or maybe imitation of writing or maybe someone's first attempts at writing. But dating-wise, mm. uh, which you asked about, what is uh, also very interesting and important about the stone, as I commented, that there's not so much that we can go after when it comes to the script, uh, the features of individual runes uh, and uh, language in itself uh, when it comes to dating. But what uh, in some previous scholarship was used as one of the arguments with certain particular forms of runes, uh, it was then argued that, uh, for instance, with an E rune, uh, that there would be uh, different, uh, differently shaped versions of it. And one would be uh, a bit uh, later than the other, so okay. that uh, on that basis uh, one could then try to argue that uh, a certain inscription was older uh, or uh, later uh, compared to some other material. But uh, what was very <laughs> exciting about our find then is that on this stone we actually have this uh, form of e-rune recorded that some scholars then previously thought would only come later. So of in this way... Of course. <laughs> of course you did. I mean, if it's going to be anything, it has to be that, doesn't it? Yeah. So in a way, that uh, dating criterion has also just uh, totally <laughs> disappeared. You're, just, you're yeah. just knocking down walls left, right and center. I mean, that has to be that has to be fun. Um, okay. So what what does it say? What mm. do what can we see? What are the inscriptions? Mm. So obviously, there's I know there's more than one. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, where where should we start? What's the yeah. most intriguing to you, maybe? Yeah, most intriguing overall is it that it's a uh, it's this collection of different inscriptions, uh, samples of uh, writing. You could even say scribbles. Uh, some of them maybe also more like uh, sketches or uh, faint drawings. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just this very fascinating combination uh, that it all is accumulated on this one piece of stone and also something that you wouldn't expect to find on a runestone. So not yeah. only the oldest stated runestone, but also so peculiar uh, by its nature. So some uh, could maybe compared to like a small uh, writing tablet or so then you start thinking about is this revealing a certain part of runic tradition that we have not been aware of uh, at least we see a very different way of using runes uh, in stone that we have seen on uh, stones before the way they have been very thinly scratched or incised uh, into the stone and uh, so there are different sequences of runes. And uh, in this first round of public outreach, we also made a very uh, conscious decision about, uh, as we are still working on uh, completing both uh, the archaeological reports and also working on our uh, publications uh, that uh, we hope will come uh, 
uh, out sometime during this year. Uh, then we also decided that we have to keep the message uh, kind of compressed and uh, yeah. a bit uh, a bit simple for the first public outreach, where the main goal was simply also to inform others. Uh, or interested people around the world that this stone exists. Uh, yeah. And uh, it was quite uh, interesting also thinking back then uh, discussing with the people who work with uh, public dissemination and exhibitions and communication with our museum too, because with this kind of find, I knew that it would catch, uh, uh, it would draw a lot of attention because I know that uh, rooms are making headlines yeah. And room stones in particular, and in this case, the oldest in the world. Yeah, so, so I knew, but they were also at the same time, yeah, but what can we say about this stone? Because people mm. want to know what is on the yeah. stone. And that part they understood as well, because yes, of course, we have to give them something. <laughs> what is on that stone? Not just that mm -hmm. it's the oldest room stone. So we discussed also how to kind of approach this in an accessible way and uh, tell something about the stone, which in itself is a very complex stone. Because, of course, when you have such a find, I was saying to some of my colleagues too, that when you first get something like that in your hands, of course, it can't be anything simple <laughs> to, no. to decode or understand. Because there are these various sequences where, they're the, where you basically just have to, in the end, I guess, decide whether you even attempt uh, to provide a kind of interpretation or whether you mm, in the end conclude that it will be too speculative and you kind of refrain you just uh, read the runes establish the reading okay. and discuss maybe some options but not necessarily provide an interpretation of it as a text but, right okay but uh, we do have this, uh, as I said, for our public outreach too. And what we communicated then is that there is this one inscription on the stone that uh, where you have eight runes that uh, stand out very clearly. Uh, mm. They are carved a bit uh, differently, more distinctly. The uh, the contours, uh, the, the traces uh, left after carving, they are a bit uh, deeper in that case. Uh, deeper doesn't mean that they are deep, but uh, just slightly deeper because everything on this uh, stone is actually rather thin and shallow. Mm -hmm. uh, just but just for, for anybody listening, we'll post some pictures when we post this on yeah. Instagram. So that's just yeah. Nordic Mythology Podcast on Instagram. And you can see some images of this because like you say, it's not, it's not deep. It's the no. kind of thing I used to yeah. do when I was a child when I was just yeah. scratching into stones myself. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, there again with that stone, maybe you have to ask as well as whose hands have actually been active there. And probably, possibly, uh, several uh, people have left their uh, marks on the stone. Okay. But yeah. with these eight runes and along the lower left hand corner of the stone, which is also, I think, uh, what then uh, we had, of course, uh, uh, a more somewhat more detailed presentation of uh, different inscriptions on the stone. Uh, but I think in uh, the news that then traveled uh, through different news uh, outlets through the world. I think uh, the main message often uh, got uh, uh, kind of even more compressed. And uh, so I think uh, various headlines you probably could just read about this one inscription, the Idiberug, mm -hmm. and, yeah. uh, and the one possible way of interpreting the inscription then that we uh, uh, presented. Uh, again, I also emphasize that uh, this uh, with even the, this one inscription, there are also alternative ways of assessing it uh, when it comes to interpretations. But uh, one possible way uh, of interpreting it is that it's a person's name. 
so uh, so then we were discussing some options and narrowed it down to uh, possibly a female name uh, and uh, but uh, the problem uh, with this inscription is also that uh, with uh, these various uh, suggestions you also have uh, with almost each of them you also have some issues so uh, in our forthcoming work also in the article we will then again present the reading, the interpretation, and then discuss uh, so what uh, supports this and what goes against this. Uh, so it will be basically step and step. And uh, I think that maybe in the end, with at least this one inscription, we will try to conclude what we ourselves and the team working on it will maybe uh, find um, more likely. Uh, mm -hmm. But we will present different options uh, of interpreting the inscription as well. So, uh, so again, I think that uh, maybe in the first uh, public dissemination round, uh, uh, maybe people read uh, the story, picked it up uh, in the Guardian or CNN, and then it's yeah. already stated uh, more, uh, like it's more definite than it actually is. But uh, but possibly a name, uh, possibly a mm -hmm. woman's name. And uh, and then we have another spot on the stone, which is very interesting because there as well, and uh, when people look at the photos, uh, pictures that are available, uh, you see that uh, to the on the along the right uh, hand side of the stone, uh, I'm talking still about the broad face of a stone where you have yeah. most of the inscriptions. And there you also have three uh letter shapes or forms that are much bigger than the rest and also a bit uh, a bit deeper uh, carving uh, technique there as well and there you can actually see the shapes are very similar to the first uh, three runes that introduce the runic alphabet the futtark you have the yeah. futh uh, okay. and uh, and uh, then it's uh, the question, is this just like accidental similarity or is this actually then basically the earliest known attempt uh, that we see here of someone trying to start uh, to carve the beginning of the runic alphabet? Mm -hmm. I would wish uh, that it would then mean that the alphabet has been established by the yeah, time that this yeah, was... Yeah. The order, the futtark uh, in that case, and uh, there would have been people who were knowledgeable of that. And uh, and then there are these other parts of the or little inscriptions, and uh, some of them, um, as I said, also sometimes it can be hard to uh, distinguish what is uh, uh, what is writing and what is an image, because with this stone too, uh, you have some spots where you have, for example, some zigzag lines, and uh, which could stand for. Uh, Runic uh, letters could, for instance, be a zigzag type of S rune, or uh, in some cases you have that maybe they have tried to uh, recreate or repeat, imitate the same B rune that is present in the possible name inscription okay. several times on the stone. But it's also in some cases possible to just see that are these maybe stylized uh, versions of runes or maybe just uh, ornamental motifs, that it's uh, just basically simple drawings. So the line there is also kind of vague. Uh, it's uh, not always automatically easy to assert that, yes, this necessarily has to be writing. Uh, mm -hmm. In some cases, maybe somebody was just uh, basically imitating writing or uh, or drawing something. Okay. So, uh, 
So, so that also makes the stone so fascinating. Am I right in thinking, is there two bees on top of each other? Uh, this is uh, a bee room then that has uh, four pockets and it would yes. uh, yes, yeah it would look like uh, like what would we could call uh, like a room where you have the main stave and uh, then it is shared uh, but uh, in this case uh, I um, I think it is a, a version then a, a graphic variant the type of bee room uh, that is used in this inscription. And that it uh, stands for a single B. Uh, it is just uh, perhaps a more stylized version, an earlier version of the B rune, mm -hmm. or um, uh, maybe something that was uh, spe specifically characteristic for the carver of that inscription then, because that same uh, shape, uh, the same B rune with four pockets, we see attempts at imitating the same shape uh, various spots on the stone uh, with okay. uh, with various degrees of success you could say or well, some of them are very faint and uh, more like rough uh, sketches or drafts and uh, others are then uh, more similar to the b-rule that you have in the main inscription and this is also something that makes you wonder if it's uh, actually been several hands that have uh, worked on this stone and left their marks and and maybe if that part of the main inscription if we if we call it the main inscription the one that's the clearest on the stone and uh, where the possibly uh, person's name uh, is recorded that then maybe that may have been a point in itself to repeat an element that belonged uh, to the name mm -hmm. uh, by other hands as well. If the stone, for example, was meant to uh, be a kind of uh, memorial stone, part of the grave as mm -hmm. uh, uh, dedicated to the deceased or uh, or maybe like kind of a gift from someone who made the stone. Yeah. So then that could have been also the purpose of it, or, uh, theoretically, hypothetically speaking. Now I'm yeah. only uh, not stating anything that I am confident mm -hmm. about, but yeah. uh, simply speculating a bit upon um, how these various uh, carvings may have, uh, yeah, uh, mm -hmm. may have been made. That maybe there were several people who uh, left little marks or added something of their own to okay. the stone. That's that's really fascinating because. I was thinking of it as almost like a little sketch pad. Like when I was when I was younger and I was in maths and I was bored and I had a little piece of paper, you guaranteed I always wrote my name yeah. and then I did little sketches and I'd do like yeah. little markings. And none of them made any sense really. They no. were just like little we've yeah. all done it when we're bored. We just yeah. draw things and it sounded like that. But then mm. what you just said then changed my mind completely. Or at least made me think think differently of this idea of if it's a memorial stone, and the mm. same way today, you know, when somebody's sick, or you know, sometimes when somebody passes away, there'll be one card that gets passed around the office, and everybody writes mm. their own little message on it, mm. and you know, their their own well wishes. Mm. And if it's found in a grave, could it possibly be something like that, where people have mm. marked it in their own little way of like, mm. you know? Yeah, as a farewell. At least it's a possibility uh, which is fascinating to think about. Uh, I don't think we'll ever be able to prove anything uh, like that. Yeah. 
but uh, it is a possibility when you try to explain uh, one way of explaining why we see so many different uh, uh, different quality also varying uh, uh, marks, uh, varying ways of trying to recreate, uh, as I said, this B rule, but also these other zigzags, and uh, and mm. also there's like a grid pattern that uh, that's comes what I forward. wanted to ask about. On uh, some places of a stone. So I wouldn't rule out, uh, in a way, that other idea too, that you said, yes, many people have uh, shared the same impression that it also almost uh, reminds them, as I said, you know, like a little writing tablet or uh, mm. or a sketchbook or, uh, yeah, as you were yeah. explaining. So, so because it is uh, definitely something that also creates these kinds of associations. So people can have different associations when uh, they look at the stone. But um, overall, then, uh, yes, naturally, we will have to think also about the context then and was the stone then possibly made for that very purpose or was it also something that maybe the stone already existed uh, and then ended up being used uh, in the grave? So we don't know, but uh, it is very interesting and naturally to discuss this uh, yeah, as at least uh, different theories about uh, how the inscriptions uh, could have come mm -hmm. into being and why. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to I want to ask you about the grid pattern, but I also then want to give you what I see in my kind of mind's eye of what this is. Because I, for some reason, whilst we've been talking, I've painted this image in my head of kind of the person who made this and maybe how he got there. And I don't know or why she. the... Oh, well, or she... Yeah. Well, that actually, that it is a she in my mind, mm. um, and yeah, I wanna I wanna put that forward because I don't know why this very rarely happens to me. That is, this, this, I've just got this very clear image just kind of popped up, and mm. I, it's quite fascinating. So I want to put that to you. But first, the the grid pattern. That's it because to me it looks like somebody is ready to play knots and crosses. That's kind of <laughs> that's that's the kind of shape that it is. Mm. Yeah. It is also, again, a fascinating part of the stone. And uh, there, uh, partly you can see, I mean, I've spent so many hours on that stone uh, and uh, and uh, every time you could basically see something new. Every time you yeah. go back and you discover something new about it, uh, all this way, the different lines intersect. But also when you look at it more closely, and uh, I used, uh, among other things, also digital microscope uh, with it and getting the... The pictures then uh, zoomed in and bigger uh, and on your computer screen, uh, uh, then to a certain extent, then you can also see the order of uh, in which order certain lines may have been oh, incised, wow. what is uh, below and what is on top. To a certain degree, you can see that uh, uh, at least uh, with these uh, thin inscriptions when mm. uh, digital microscope can help. And uh, and there, with part of the grid pattern, then you see that uh, some of it is then underneath some of the runic uh, letters, uh, the runic size that have been uh, uh, inscribed there. So was this already, for example, present on the stone then, and then somebody started adding runes to it? Was a stone, for example, used for something to start with? The kind of grid pattern brings to mind, for instance, uh, possibilities of games one could play mm -hmm. and uh, from iron age too uh, you uh, recognize the motif uh, in the archaeological uh, material but uh, again uh, these are just uh, 
kind of different ideas uh, you get uh, when you look at the stone and uh, and try to make sense of what's uh, visible, what's uh, present there. Uh, very mm -hmm. uh, fascinating combination of, uh, as I said, both writing and the drawing. Is that is that grid something that's found on other stones or other runic inscriptions? Uh, uh, not uh, as far as I know, not as part of stones, but uh, here I think archaeologists would uh, give you a better answer. I just uh, overall know that when you, of course, you can talk about uh, the tradition of uh, how certain games uh, have also developed uh, and how they have been introduced in different uh, uh, mm. areas uh, and uh, also in Scandinavia, then, I mean, I can't claim anything about this particular grid pattern that uh, that, that would provide us evidence of uh, some early type of game uh, being yeah. present in Scandinavia. But, but at least it is kind of a motif that to a certain degree reminds one of that. So uh, uh, possibly... Yeah when we go more systematically through different finds, uh, also in other types of objects, maybe something pops up that uh, can provide an interesting parallel. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're, we've done about an hour and 15 at the minute. So I don't want to, I don't want to keep you too long. So I do want to get to doing a Q and a, so I'd like to, is there anything else about the inscriptions that you think we need to know? Cause I would like to talk a little bit about, just the whole putting this into the world and how mm. that works and and that whole process. So in terms of the, the inscription itself, is there anything you think that was missing that we should know? Mm. Then I will give you what my vision is of what I think this could be. And mm. then let's talk about like that whole, this is what we've got then mm. showing it to the world. Um, yeah, when it comes to inscriptions, maybe the main message here is, as I said, that uh, this is uh, quite a puzzling find, uh, not necessarily easy to find uh, uh, complete answers to, and maybe something that we will never be able to uh, solve uh, completely. But also there's one thing that I'm 100% uh, sure about, that there will be many scholars working on this stone for years to come. And there, again, the stone in itself, uh, I think uh, uh, in the future for somebody, it might become an interesting project also to go through then uh, reception history and also scholarly history, because with this stone as well, I will, uh, I can guarantee that there will be those scholars, uh, and maybe I'm again a bit more like this kind of skeptical type that keeps myself from uh, throwing out uh, mm. different uh, theories and uh, possible interpretations of the more tricky sequences that are present on the stone. But uh, I'm sure that there will be scholars uh, who will then try to interpret everything that uh, try to make sense of everything, make uh, kind of linguistic sense and find out that uh, have a theory about that maybe everything has a textual meaning, which mm. is, as I think, not necessarily uh, the case with this stone because there's these other features about it that can also show that uh, maybe it is also partly just scribbles and <laughs> random samples of runes, yeah. but part of it may be meaningful. So it would be very interesting to see also um, what will uh, happen uh, in scholarship uh, when it uh, comes to this stone and uh, and uh, what different scholars will think about and how they will try to make sense and interpret the various inscriptions. Mm -hmm. Are you excited for other people to have a look at this or do you have any sort of 
protection to it because i guess like you say you're the first person who got to look at it there must be a little bit of like of you in that stone now you know you've like say you've looked at it for so much it you mm. broke you know a part break in the news you were the first mm. urologist to look at it mm. so does it excite you to let other people look at it and then then maybe even you know come back and critique what you found it's a uh, part of the process naturally you have to be excited about that uh, part as well mm-hmm. and uh there are also other colleagues that have already seen the stone uh, relatively early, uh, maybe even uh, like a month or two after the stone first came to the museum. I was also consulting with some colleagues in Oslo and uh, some came to look at the stone because uh, with this kind of a very peculiar find and uh, particular spots on the stone too that the challenging then early on also uh, you start thinking of course you have to have second pair of eyes looking at it as well and somebody mm-hmm. discuss the find with so uh, in this way there are some people uh, some runologists other runologists and other scholars as well and uh, as we as i say now we have a small team also working with it so there's others who've been uh, looking at the stone as well and others who have uh, whom i have shared some materials with uh, documentation materials pictures and draft reports so it's already kind of part uh, of a bit of a broader process. So in that way, I don't really feel that uh, there's anything, so to say, that I feel that I have to be protective about. Yeah. What I'm looking forward to is, of course, uh, uh, yes, that once we get to publish our uh, uh, studies, our first studies, uh, we are planning to have an article uh, kind of the whole joint team uh, with the archaeologists uh, where Possibly the main focus then is on the dating and context and uh, a bit of first chronological information about the find. But then there will also be a second article, which is then where we can go into detail about the different inscriptions, uh, chronological and linguistic uh, assessment. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, so once these articles uh, will be published, uh, then naturally, I mean, of course, it's also... Uh, it's exciting, but it's also going to be nerve-wracking because I know there will be criticisms. I of mean, course. with this kind of stone, it's guaranteed. I mean, I could already, I didn't really uh, follow so much, but I could pick up on things where, of course, people started debating certain things right away without even mm. having uh, oh, seen yeah. the stone <laughs> yeah. or uh, without uh, uh, <laughs> having uh, read our articles where we also discuss pro and, uh, I mean, ag- arguments uh, in favor and against uh, also the different uh, ideas that we have uh, mm-hmm. shared thus far. So, uh, but I understand that too, because with that kind of an important find, it's natural that it uh, generates a lot of interest and enthusiasm. And, yeah. uh, but then uh, at some point with, um, we also basically had to kind of <laughs> ask people to be a bit patient now yeah. and wait till we uh, get to complete our work. And then we share our publications and then they can uh, uh, get started uh, and uh, we will share the documentation materials naturally as well. And uh, there will be 3D models of the stone. And uh, and uh, so, uh, I mean, yeah, I think it is only start of the longer process and it will be very interesting to see how uh, other scholars will assess uh, the stone as well. Mm-hmm. No, that, that, that is going to be exciting. Okay, so... In my mind, this is what I see. I, I I picture a young, youngish woman, youngish girl, maybe maybe like twelve years old, 
Um, and I see this as a sort of practice writing block sketch pad where maybe she's playing games with a friend or practicing writing her name, practicing the different runes. And then for some reason, this way it gets a little bit more macabre, uh, maybe she passes away for for some reason. And then when she's buried for this this stone that she has, that maybe she's obsessed over and practiced with and took an interest in is then put in the grave with her as a sentimental piece of, of something that she'd like to do. And I don't know why that that's come up and then that's what's kind of been created through the, mm. the conversation, but that's kind of how I'm seeing it. And, and mm. I guess maybe what I would like it to be, it'd have this real sentimental meaning to the, to this, mm. this child, almost the, the kind of mm. lost light. And, uh, It'll be complete. It's it's got you know. There's not. Mm. I, I don't know. Mm. But but, but, mm. but that's kind of what I'm. What do I get in? Well, maybe just to comment a bit on that. That the, with a person who was buried in the grave, uh, the bone fragments. Then uh, uh, these were analyzed as well. And unfortunately, it wasn't enough preserved to be able to determine sex in this case. So mm. we don't know if it was a female or male uh, buried uh, in the grave. Uh, but it was a younger adult then. So uh, not a child, uh, but okay. younger adult. Initially, too, actually, uh, some of the archaeologists, because there were some uh, uh, in another spot, uh, the Greyfield, uh, there were also uh, at least one child, uh, I think, if I remember correctly, found. And there are also some women uh, mm -hmm. buried uh, in the Greyfield. So uh, in, uh, yeah, in uh, some cases, then, uh, they, yeah, they are not necessarily related uh, to the runestone grave as such, but at least when you look at the Greyfield overall, so you have uh, a bit, uh, different age groups uh, represented. But uh, it's... Uh, yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, uh, you can have these different images uh, and ideas in your head. And and uh, early on, uh, one of the, uh, not runologists, but one of the archaeologists uh, just like uh, also was describing just her general impression of the stone and basically also saying, but doesn't it look like, you know, like this uh, piece of uh, paper where a kid has uh, done yeah. some sketches and a parent has written the kid's name oh, yeah. <laughs> on the, on the <laughs> bottom bottom of the page. So that kind of, that's the kid's work. Um, so that's also another kind of just nice image. Uh, mm. uh, again, uh, naturally, we don't know what actually happened, uh, whose hands have uh, left these uh, marks and traces on mm. the stone. But in any case, uh, when you look at this stone too, it's... Uh, it's this incredible sample of uh, a creativity in itself as well that, uh, I mean, it's simple and uh, it scribbles and it's not any fancy ornamental motifs or, uh, or uh, intricate imagery or, or monumental inscriptions, but it is very creative in its own way. And, uh, and just incredibly fascinating to look at and, uh, and think. Uh, as I've said to so many people now, uh, it's just uh, it's the most amazing feeling when you touch something and you know that there are these other hands that have touched this yeah. before you a uh, long, long time ago. And, and, it, and now it's here on your desk and you look at it and there are so many things that you'll never know about it. 
but it's here and it is mm. uh, open for interpretation and uh, and it's part of your work and you just try to mm. figure out as much as possible uh, about it yeah I, I imagine how, I can't imagine how emotional it is because I'm getting a little bit emotional. You t- you talking about it? I'm like getting a little teary because it is. If you just take a moment to to just think about how the life of this very, you know, it's a, it's quite a simple stone, but how it's ended up and it's from it could potentially you know two thousand plus years yeah. ago and it's ended up in in the uh, museum in Oslo and the, the journey it's had and, and the, the people who've touched, touched it and inscribed it, it's, it's an amazing thing. You know, history is, mm. is fascinating. It's, yeah. It really is, really mm. is amazing. Um, okay. So I did want to touch a little bit on, uh, you've touched a, a little bit on it already on how, how this comes comes about but i was interested in when when the, when this comes to you are you do you all get told to shut up don't talk about this because i didn't hear anything about this until it obviously was released yeah. so do you all have to be very quiet it's not uh always that you kind of have to be so quiet about it uh, but in this case uh when we had this stone, uh, when it first uh, came up and the find, and we were meeting our first meetings uh, and started discussing how we would go forward about it. Uh, the thing is that uh, if we had then gone public with it, we found runestone, older footwork inscription, without actually having found out more about it at that point, not being really able to say much about the age because we would have had to send in samples for analysis and wait for some months and. So for partly that reason, to have more to actually say about this find and have some uh, time when we could uh, just kind of in peace and quiet work and figure out more. And then, of course, uh, another aspect to it was it was part of an ongoing excavation project. And with archaeological excavations, then there's also certain risk assessments uh, and uh, concerning the site and uh, and. Uh, with the, that also in mind, it's not so uncommon as I've learned from archaeology colleagues that they uh, hold some information for a while till the project uh, progresses more and uh, then at some point you are ready to share it uh, with others. So uh, so there was um, yeah, a combination of uh, different factors here and evaluation uh, and uh, we were then uh, ready basically for... Um, well, I think the radiocarbon dating, uh, the results came in during spring 2022. And uh, then uh, summer holidays, of course, during summertime, you don't really think that you you will wait till autumn uh, to uh, announce something like that. And then we were kind of planning for autumn 2022 to uh, go public with this. But uh, some additional fragments they found uh, from the site, uh, also with uh, some runes on it, uh, which are p- possibly then uh, part of the second runestone from the same location. The exhibition that we have right now at the History Museum in Oslo, we have the mm. main stone and also a smaller fragment uh, as part of the exhibition. And on a smaller fragment, uh, it's possibly the end of the carver's uh, uh what we could call like a carver's formula inscription where the carver uh, basically says that they have uh, carved or made or painted uh, the rune. Because the okay. word rune and the end of a verb is uh, preserved on that fragment. 
And because there were these new uh, uh, finds from the site too uh, in uh, October 2022, then again, we had to kind of postpone uh, the going public and uh, work a bit more, find out a bit more about the newest fragments as well. And uh, and then uh, our communication uh, people said, no, 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 we can't do this before Christmas. Uh, there's no oh. point. It's, it's not good timing. So then we just ended up uh, January. Oh. And uh, in my mind, uh, I had actually very much preferred, uh, so to say, that if we, if we could have done it uh, in 2022, because I figured that because the first stone uh, uh, was found in 2021, mm. then uh, when you go public with it in 2022, then uh, people will say, yeah, OK, it took a year. But because yeah. it was early uh, 2023, uh, and people will not remember that, okay, the stone was found in November 2021 and we went public uh, January 2023. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit more than a year. But in yeah. many people's minds, all of a sudden, it's already two years. Why did you wait yeah. two years? Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. uh, so in that way, of course, uh, it would have been nice to uh, share the news in uh, during 2022. But mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I think overall, it was worth the wait. So, uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, and our people, my colleagues at the museum too, it was important for them to have some time uh, to plan the exhibition then as well, because I was also part of the uh, idea then that uh, since we have such a fascinating find that then we would also right away try to share a bit more so that people can actually come to the museum and see the stone themselves. Yeah, that's that's amazing that it's on and I need to come over and see it. I need, hmm. to, I need to make sure I, I spend a... a quite a bit of time in Oslo, so I'm going to make sure I uh, come in and, and see now, this Now, this temporary exhibition will be uh, taken down uh, by the end of February, but uh, it's not official yet, but the museum is aware that there's a lot of international interest as well, so mm -hmm. there may be possibly then a new temporary exhibition during this uh, coming summer, especially mm -hmm. with uh, international visitors, guests, tourists in mind. Uh, and uh, once uh, that is planned, as I said, it's not uh, definite yet, but there are plans for that. And uh, once uh, it's in place, then we will, of course, announce uh, this and uh, make sure that uh, it reaches social media and uh, yeah, yeah uh, other channels as well. So people know that uh, if they mm -hmm. come to Oslo this summer, that if there's a possibility of seeing that stone. Yeah, I I really would like to to see it at some point uh if not i'll be pestering you to try and sneak me in <laughs> to see it somehow <laughs> um no i i i will make sure i get there to see it it's it's fascinating and yeah i think let, let's wrap this up we've we've been talking an hour and a half now mm -hmm. and i could talk to you for another hour and a half so hopefully <laughs> in the future you can come back on and talk to us again about what what else we've learned from this yeah. and Mm. Runes in general. Um, I feel like I'm saying this quite often at the minute, but the, the live chat we have has been the quietest I think I've ever seen it. And that is always an indication that they're locked in to the conversation and they're <laughs> just sat listening and not talking amongst themselves. So this has been, you know, so fascinating. And I, and I appreciate it so much you spending the time to come and talk to us and educate the listeners. Um, yeah, I really appreciate it on behalf of everybody. Um yeah. Well, well, so thank it's you. It's been a real pleasure. So uh, and uh, yeah, I will uh, gladly come back and uh, once we publish our findings as well, then uh, there's probably more to talk about. Wonderful. Yeah. So we're gonna, like I said, we're gonna wrap up the main show. We'll do a quick half an hour Q and A where where people can just 
ask their questions to you? Because I'm sure whilst they've all been quiet, they'll all be thinking of their own questions. And if not, I'm sure I have a, a bunch more. Hmm. So so for people listening, if you do want to check out the Q&A, it's on our Patreon. So it's Patreon forward slash Nordic Mythology Podcast. It's £3 a month. So it's 10p a day. It's literally buying me or Crystal a cup of coffee, which I will do when I'm in Oslo. If we, <laughs> if we ever meet, I will buy you a coffee for this conversation because I've been thoroughly entertained and I've absolutely loved every second of it. Um, okay, so I know you put a lot of stuff on Twitter. Do you want to shout out your Twitter handle so people can keep up to date on there? Um, yeah, it is basically my name, then Crystal. Uh, well, you, you see on the screen. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I think it's uh, I think it's yeah. possible to find me relatively easily yeah. with that. Mm. No, I, I, I know that I saw you put in a lot of mm. information on there, keeping mm. it very neat and organized and, and in order. I know that was the first place that I went to, to check out mm. for, for information and read through that to try and mm-hmm. get as much accurate information as possible. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. So if you, if you enjoy the show, please take a minute to leave us a five-star rain and a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. And obviously you can just follow us on all channels, just at Nordic Mythology, at Nordic Mythology Podcast. And if you want to watch the show, it's also going to be on YouTube. So yeah, Crystal, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, like I say, I appreciate it greatly and it's been a very, very fun episode. Thank you.